Today I flew into Las Vegas, Nevada to meet up with Casey Ellis during the Black Hat Security Conference. We discussed his background in information security, how we got into bug bounties starting the very first crowdsourced vulnerability assessment company, BugCrowd, how the industry evolved, and what BugCrowd did to change the economics of finding bugs. We also discussed entrepreneurship, mentoring, and what it feels like to be vulnerable. And with that, enjoy this conversation with Casey Ellis. Hello and welcome to the Arsenic Show. Today we have Casey Ellis. We are here in the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Beautiful Las Vegas. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, sir. Uh-huh. My pleasure. Uh, I've actually wanted to have you on this show almost since the very beginning of the show. But, I, you know, there was pandemics and you were kind of locked down for a while. Life got in the way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you also live in another country for a good chunk of that time. Yeah, during and, COVID, yeah, for sure. Uh, and so that, that made everything much, much more complicated. Uh, and then it was sort of like, well, when are you going to be in Austin next? And it just, it, this was never going to happen if I didn't do it here. So uh, it works out great. I mean, yeah. you know, summer camp, that's probably one of the things I like most about it. <laughs> yeah, so for the, one spot. for the audience who has n- no context for Black Hat, like, what what does it mean for you? Like, what what are you doing here? I, honestly, like Bug Crowd, um, kind of which is your company? Yeah, which is my company, <laughs> by the way. Um, yeah, for sure. It, it kind of feels like it got its start and got its legs down here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our first um, DefCon and Black Hat in 2013. Uh, you know, I'd been part of the hacker community for for years, like online and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'd never actually been here before. And a lot of people in the team who weren't as much a part of the hacker community hadn't really seen it in that same way. So you get dropped in here and it's like this, like, IRL representation of all the stuff that we get involved in on the internet. Mm-hmm. And I just fell in love with it. Yeah, I, I, every year. It's funny because I think the first, you know, the first half of the week I'm excited to be here. The second half of the week I'm, like, getting a bit Vegas'd out and wanting to go home. <laughs> And, and anyone who spent enough time in Vegas knows exactly what that means. Exactly right. And that's <laughs> why I sound like a truck driver right now. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, the back half of the year, it's like, okay, uh, you know, that, that was intense. But then, you know, Christmas rolls around. I start to, like, pine for summer camp. Yeah. Because it's, it's family. You know yeah. I mean? Like, this is, you know, I think people that do what we do, there's a unique quirk to us that when we all get together, there's something special about it. And no, that's absolutely. what I think happens here. I yeah. ran into somebody I hadn't seen, and I'm not exaggerating, probably at least 10 years. And I'm just, I was like almost tearing up about seeing this guy. I'm like, I've been thinking about you. you kind of disappeared. He's like, oh, uh, you know, I was just doing my other thing or whatever. And I'm like, it's so good to see these yeah. people. You know? Yeah, 100%. So um, I actually don't know too much about your um, progress, about how you started and you know, kind of out of high school. And I know you got in hacking very early. Like, kind of tell me a little bit about your career. Like, how'd you get to where you are? Well, I was born at a young age. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, uh, look, I think, like, career-wise, um, I, there's all sorts of different... Like, my, my CV looks like someone fired a shotgun at a piece of paper. Like, I've done so many different things kind of prior to locking into this, like, cyber entrepreneur um, career path. You yeah, know, totally. I, I think that's kind of when I found out, like, oh, that's the thing that I do. That's the thing that I love. Um, but prior to that, it was all sorts of different crap. Um, you know, growing up, my, my father was a science teacher, Um and that meant that he, uh, you know, he was always bringing tech home. Like he was bringing me to school. Like I was, I loved learning, loved tearing things apart, putting them back together. Um, my parents, to their credit, both like identified that pretty early on and just did everything they could to foster it mm. with, with whatever they had avail- available. So, you know, dad would take me out of elementary school and, and bring me to high school every now and then, like just different things like that. 
And, um, you know, I think they kind of identified the the hacker curiosity and all that kind of stuff um, in me pretty early on and just did everything they could to foster it. So that to me is kind of where it starts oftentimes. Um, and not everyone is as lucky with, with that start as, as I was, but mm. I, I definitely give them a lot of credit for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like growing up, um, you know, I think really what, what happened, you know, tearing apart technology, putting it back together, uh, you know, born in the 80s, early 80s, so I'm part of the um, the Oregon Trail generation, <laughs> right? So so we kind of, you know, started school without computers and finished school with a, with a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what happened at one point, you know, dad bought a computer home. Um, I started, you know, just tearing into it and, you know, learning how to code, learning how to like get it to do things that it was meant to do. But... I always had this instinct to try to get stuff to do what it wasn't meant to do. Um, and Where do you think I, that comes from? I don't know. Like, I, 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 some of it, some of me puts it down to being Australian and, you know, just coming from <laughs> an old <laughs> convicts, right? Well, I don't know what my problem is then. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Maybe it's I'm like, part it's Australian. It's not just an Australian thing, but yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I think, I think there's, there's definitely wiring that, that comes into it, um, and, and I think that that's that's helpful and something that you know I see, um, you know, with with Bugcrowd and this like enormous community, kind of what we do as a product, like that sort of neurodiversity that exists. I, I definitely think that applies to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think as well, like the idea of just always kind of being fascinated by criminal creativity, but never wanting to commit crime myself, if that makes sense. Like wanting always, to, but you, being. Like, you're on, you're on it. Um, <laughs> wanting to do so bad, but knowing like, you don't want to go to jail. <laughs> no, in, in, in the sense of like, I don't want to hurt people. Yeah, true. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's like this idea of like, I actually kind of appreciate the way criminals get things done. It's, you know, the same as when you watch a crime show, like that sort of bent. Um, Absolutely. But it kind of went a, a step beyond that where it's like, no, I actually want to like try to figure out that stuff with my own hands mm-hmm. then try to find ways to, to use it and, oh, crap, I can't actually do any of this stuff in the real world without committing a crime. That sucks. And that's like back to the career thing. Um, you know, coming out of high school, didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, and through high school did, you know, I presented a, on a TV show for a couple of years there. I played drums in bands for for... Yeah, I've been doing that pretty much since I was 15, but I was in a band for about four and a half years. I was doing touring and all that kind of crap. So this is what I meant by the mm-hmm. weird resume thing Yeah, before. right. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, of course, ending high school, it's, it's like I've got no idea what I want to be when I grow up. Well, this job didn't really exist in the 80s. That's the thing. I mean, That's or, thing, or 90s, yeah. Yeah. or really even early 2000s, barely. Yeah. Yeah, so I was right, like, when I finished high school, was right on the cusp of that. It was 99. Mm-hmm. So, um yeah, you know, I'd actually um, been accepted to do. Uh, I was going to get into nuclear medicine. That was like the the planned path, which is I think a funny little crossover as well because it's the nerdy tech stuff. But then there's this like idea of wanting to find ways to help people. Um, that was the thing that I kind of always had going on as well. And uh, you know, went to university, took a gap year, which is what you do in Australia. Like we don't you know switch mm-hmm. states at the end of high school and yeah. call it done. We like because we usually go to university in our hometown because mm-hmm. it's like five major cities and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all travel for a year and then start college after that. So I did that. Um, did about six weeks of my degree and I'm like, I don't know why I'm here. Like the only reason I'm doing this is because someone told me that I needed to do college after high school and I, I can't apply myself to this if I don't believe in its purpose. So I dropped out and basically tripped over into a network engineering role. 
Um, that's, that's quite a trip. <laughs> yeah, well, a network engineering apprenticeship. So I had a friend who was an entrepreneur um, who'd started up a consultancy. And, um, you know, he, to his credit, and, and this is another kind of serendipitous thing that I'm very thankful for, he kind of called me out at one point and said, hey, like, you could probably do this. Um, this is a really interesting space. You sh should come check it out. Um, you know, do you want to be an intern, blah, blah, blah. He changed your life. Yeah, literally. Um, ah. So, so there was there was that for a chunk of time, and the thing that happened in that job is I started hacking stuff because you know going back to the growing up part, like I'd been on you know BBS and ISE and like starting to really learn and network on um, exploitation that kind of thing. I started to apply that in context of being a network engineer and realized that people actually need and and want and value um, this type of work, which was when I realized that oh cool I can think like a criminal and actually have a real job mm. doing that. That was how I discovered pen testing, I guess. Um, and that's, you know, it kind of all went from there in a lot of ways. That's great. Yeah. So was pen testing related to your under? So you, you started learning networks. Um, I'm sure you probably read like TCP IP Illustrated or something like that. You know, yeah, like, maybe not that. Book and yeah, like, okay. yeah so you, book stuff, so you yeah. were starting down the path of like, okay, how do I not just build networks, but you know, both protect them from outsiders, but also how would I break into them? I mean, is that, is that kind of the progress? Yeah, I think part, of, I think that's, that sums it up well. I think part of um, my own version of it is that, um, you know, the way that I apply system level thinking or, or gain system level insight to a thing is to tip it upside down and see what falls out, hmm. right? So like, cool, here's how you build a network, here's how you do all these different things. Part of my instinct, kind of in order to understand what I'm doing better, is to just reverse all of the assumptions and see where the edges are, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that is, um, yeah, that kind of process is a lot of what I consider hacking to be in in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much what I was doing. It's like, cool, learn how to you know configure Active Directory, learn how to like administer a Unix system, deploy networks. You know, wireless was just starting to come in at the time, and I was fascinated by the security model. Um, or the violations of a wired security model that wireless introduces. It's like you've got all of these assumptions that are kind of baked into things not being over the air that you've just gone and violated hmm. um, by adding wireless. Um, oh, whoops, people didn't really think that part through. Um, so, you know, the, all these different things going on. And yeah, I, I think the builder, kind of the builder and breaker mindset for me, I don't really see them, like I talk about it, as different mindsets a lot. I don't see them as necessarily being all that different because for me, they're kind of the same thing, right? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, had, I had kind of a similar epiphany about printers one day. This is it's probably probably more than 20 years ago now, but I was just thinking about printers. I'm like, printers have all these different ways to access them, and now it's like way worse than it was back then, but no. like yeah. that you can get them, you put them on Wi-Fi, you can, you can hook them to Ethernet, so now they're dual-homed. Uh, they also have IR. They also yep. have like serial ports, you know, <laughs> like, and then you can send them email. They actually reach out to an email server and ask, yeah, like, cloud pull, printing, uh, yeah, cloud printing, a right. somewhere. There's yeah. like 30 like, yeah. different ways to access these things, and like, and people just throw them right on the network. Just yeah, everybody can just reach them. Yeah. So that's always been a very interesting attack vector for me. Um, but I think that is very similar to what you're talking about with Wi-Fi. It's like. Wi-Fi and a wired network, you have just done something completely different than you think you've done. Yeah. 
It's yeah. interesting. Yeah, and that, mm. that same model, I mean, the, the thing that's fun about that, um, it's funny, it's only just occurring to me that's a similar um, assumption violation uh, to, you know, what we see a lot today, like kind of that version in my own kind of story. Um, but, you know, car hacking, right? Like mm-hmm. the whole thing with connected vehicles, like for years you've had cars with the CAN bus inside and the security model kind of relies on the idea of you not being in the car. Um, if you're in the car, you trust it. If you're out, you're not. That's mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then you go and put a head unit inside that vehicle and connect it off to the internet. All of a sudden, the internet's inside the car. And CAN bus was never designed for that. So you've got this, like, whoops mm-hmm. moment. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that kind of kicked off in 2015 with um, with Charlie and Chris. Yeah. And it's, you know, that sort of thing's important. Like, you, we see it now, um, you know, industrial control systems, same problem. You've got a, a, a you know, a power plant that you want to put an uh, internet-connected sensor inside. Or, you know, COVID, like, drove a lot of this type of thing. It's like, oh, people need to work from home. So how are we going to hook this thing up to the internet to facilitate that? Whoops, we forgot that it was never designed to do that. Mm-hmm. Same problem. Um, just repeated over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon. I think a lot of, like, again, kind of system-level security issues kind of boil down to that. It's like, I didn't think anyone would do this. Um, and it's not necessarily dumb. It just wasn't in the mind of the creator when they when they did their thing. I had a kind of a similar conversation with uh, some Secret Service guys. I was talking about the presidential you know, vehicle. Hmm. And uh, they're like, well, we've hardened it against this and that and this other thing. I'm like, what about the tires? And they're looking at me and I'm looking at them. I'm like, you know, the tire sensors. Yeah, You you can break in through the tire sensor Mm -hmm. monitors. And they started kind of freaking out. They're like, okay, but, you know, and then what would you do? You know, because like theoretically that should, yes, that's terrible, but that should be all you would be able to do is just break in. I'm like, well, um, I have the ability to lock the doors, right? Like, yeah. Like now the president's safe is what they're thinking. I'm like, but I could also turn on the heaters, right? And then I can just cook them, right? And they're looking at me, and I'm looking at them, and they're like, yeah. Yeah, okay, we're going to go make some changes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's not to, not to pound on automotive too much, because this happens everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. But there was a fun thing, I think Sammy Kamkar pointed out, that yeah. um, you know, airbags have a EOL command that you can send them over the CAN bus, which actually detonates the airbag. And, and the purpose of that command is if you like junk a car, right? Mm-hmm. You can you can do that. Um, CAN bus doesn't have any authentication, <laughs> so That'd like if that really exists, bad. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, yeah, and that's the kind of thing that can go wrong because it makes perfect sense for that thing to be there. Like it's can got. You, can you imagine a as a state actor if you just deployed every airbag in the United States all at once? Yeah, I have thought that one through a little bit. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Or like the self-driving vehicles, like we're we're not quite there yet. But when they all are, all the trucks are going to be self-driving someday. And yep. It's just a it'll be a cost efficiency thing. And then all of a sudden they all just get bricked. I mean that would just be absolute chaos. Yeah, yeah. And I think honestly, like this goes to um, uh, you know, one of the the kind of fundamental things that drove me to build Bug Crowd. It's like you know companies need f- the feedback of people like us because they're just trying to do their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going to necessarily realize that there's something wrong until there's a like failure in the wild. So like, how do we let them know sooner than that? Because you know that that airbag example I just gave, like auto manufacturers know that now, and they've they've gone off and mitigated it. So That's it's not right. it hasn't gone away as a problem. But now that they're aware of it, they're obviously doing something about it because it's not not a great thing to have in a car, right? right? Yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah. 
So that's a great segue. Why don't we talk about how Bug Crowd came to be? Like, how did you come up with this idea? And yeah, for sure. And and also, I think in context, um, we mentioned a little bit about you know disclosure. Mm. I think it'd be good to put it in context of the time when there was these massive debates about the the disclosure process and all that stuff. So yeah, no, hundred um, percent. That's a that's a lot. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll do the Bug Crowd thing first. Sure. So yeah, I mean my 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 role. Um, yeah, you know, I, I finally did figure out what I was going to do when I when I grew up. Mm -hmm. um, Circus no, performer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Eventually, we'll get around to that one. That's like a retirement plan. But you know. um, so yeah, I'm the uh, the founder and CTO of Bug Crowd. Um, started the company as founder CEO and then stepped out of that seat about six years in. Mm -hmm. um, also, the co-founder of a thing called the Disclose IO project, which mm -hmm. is really just about like vulnerabilities, you know, disclosure, standardization. Yeah, let's like, definitely get to that, that one too. We'll get yeah. to that as well. Uh -huh. So that's kind of the what does Casey do answer mm -hmm. for anyone interested. <laughs> <laughs> it's my like pattern. I usually say that, say that at the start of it. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, Bugcrow came about, um, you know, my, my kind of six years in pen test was, was, you know, fantastic, like built a team, learned a lot, you know, figured out like, or got to see the value of that kind of feedback in the market. Um, and literally at one point I actually was having a conversation with my wife and she basically said, hey, like you computer good, but you people good too. Um, I don't think you realize that not everyone can do that. It's a rare skill. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm like, what? I thought everyone could. Um, so, you know, she was suggesting that I go off to the, to the dark side, so to speak, and, and, and get, a, get a job in sales and solution, you know, architecture, that kind of thing. Um, which, you know, as a hacker was like, oh, I don't want to be like a white, dirty white hat sellout. Mm -hmm. But eventually got over that and, and went off and um, did that uh, in, in the front of the house. Basically, it was an SE role um, in, in, in hindsight. Like the Australian market at that point in time was so small that we what, didn't what have... What kind of company? Uh, it was a company called Vectra. They mostly did... Networking, um, right? Vector Networks, right? Uh, no, Vectra uh, Security Pre-Vector uh, Networks. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a while ago. Uh -huh. I'm so old. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so, so did that for, for a chunk of time. Um, and yeah, you know, in the process of doing the business stuff, like the idea of, of being a technologist and being a, a business person kind of got together and conspired. Like I read the four-hour work week at some point and mm -hmm. kind of the light bulb went off and I, I got it in my head that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So that was... And now you do it four hours a day. Now I do it. <laughs> yeah, four hours a day. Exactly. Uh, like 15 times a day. <laughs> damn it, Tim Ferriss, you didn't tell me about this part. No. Um, but yeah, so yeah, like having that kind of idea noodling in the background that I, I, I think I can build things and grow them and I want to see if I can. Um, that's something that is, is very motivating for me. Um, so really, how Bug Crowd came about was was actually, you know, I broke bad, was doing my own thing. Um, I was running a pen test consultancy, and, and there was two problems that I wanted to solve. Um, the first was to really change the operating environment for hackers just in general. And, and that, you know, is a lot of what Bug Crowd's done, but it's a lot of what happens in Disclose.io from like a broader you know, policy influence standpoint. Um, but the other, which was more commercial, is this idea that like one person being paid by the hour can never be counted on to outsmart all of the potential things that can go wrong, mm -hmm. and then all of the creativity, all of the different motivations, you know, all of the um, incentive that exists in bad guy land. Like, there's a crowd here, there's one person here, they're going to eventually fail because of the math. Um, and it bothered me. It's like that's like we're screwed. Like as a, as an internet way, I want to double click on that, that one real quick. I've heard this before. Jeremiah Grossman talks about this a lot. Yeah, 
He's like, we actually did tests very similar to what you're talking about. We'd have small groups of people against large groups of people, and they weren't they were just roll of the dice. It wasn't like we intentionally chose good people on one side or the other, right? And every time the team with it was slightly larger would win. It, w- it was not a matter of intellect. It was a matter of horsepower. I think it's horsepower, but I also think it's diversity. Yeah. Um, like w- yeah. When, when a person finds a vulnerability, you know, one of the ways I describe what we've built at BugCrowd on, on the connection side, um, it's like match.com for people to break computers. Because you know, it, I actually think it's a really good. I mean, it makes people laugh, which is fun, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> right? Um, but it's a really good analog because you know, when you think about a dating website, like the idea of romantic potential, you know, it could happen, but you don't know for sure. Um, and you know, the job of a, a service like that is to maximize the probability of that happening when it recommends a match. I think it's similar with with vulnerability discovery because like you're pretty sure there's bugs in there. Um, you don't know for sure, otherwise you wouldn't be talking to us in the first place. Uh, and what our job is, is to get the right match of, of skills and the way that people approach a target and all these different things, um, coupled with the traits of the target that they're looking at in a way that maximizes the potential for them to actually find something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, going back to what you were saying about the larger team winning, I think horsepower is definitely a part of it, but the idea of there being diversity in that group, you and, just end and, up with that one person that gets why, right. And why diversity? I mean, do you mean diversity? I think what you mean is diversity of like I know how to do a web app, I know how to do a network, and you get those two people talking together, and they can find things that they wouldn't be able to find independently. Yeah, there, there's that. Um, I, I like definitely like technology diversity in terms of context and, mm-hmm. and skills and experience and all those different things. I actually do think you know diversity in the way that it's talked about today factors in DI as well. specifically. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, women think about risk in most of the time in a way that's fundamentally different to, to men, as mm-hmm. an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a guy, I can never fully understand that. Like, mm-hmm. I can look at it and say, oh, that's a thing, but I can't necessarily step into those shoes, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that same thing applies across all sorts of different, different groups. Um, the reason it's important is that that's how software is built. <laughs> so the mistakes that you know, we're ultimately finding or the design, design assumptions that we're actually taking advantage of, you know, there's oftentimes diversity that has gone into that. Mm. And it's, it's kind of matching, so, matching the problem with the solution. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of exactly where this is true. I was looking very heavily at cross-site scripting years ago, yeah. and uh, somebody sent me a type of cross-site scripting that was using multi-byte sequences. And so basically, it'd be one character, and then the next character, and the next character would all create a kanji. Um, And occasionally that kanji would end up inside of code and it would start eating away the code nearby it as all one kanji. It would would start eating into the next characters and cause all kinds of weird things to happen. That is absolutely not something I would ever have in a million years researched on my own had it not been for a Chinese person who found that issue. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, uh, you know, that's a a really good example because, you know, you're talking about language which is very obvious and very visible. Mm-hmm. I think if you pull back a little bit from that, there's subtleties in you know, how people think. Um, you know, neurodiversity, we've already kind of touched on that. So you've got your you know, ADHD hacker versus your OCD hacker and they're going to approach things in a different way. Mm-hmm. Like those sorts of things. Like it takes all kinds, I think, to, to you know. I totally agree with that. Yeah. 100%. Um, and I think that's why it works. So well, tell me about the responsible disclosure debate because <coughs> you, you, you just kind of like dove right in at a time where it seemed like 
half of the speeches were about disclosure debate. It was very annoying to me personally. Like, <laughs> why are, why can't we get past this just to actually doing the work? But mm. we, we just, as an industry, we're not able to get... It was a big stalemate for a long time, years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first thing, you know, going back to the founding of, of, of Bug Crowd, like looking at this idea of there being all of these hackers available and out there, um, you know, of which I was a part as a, as a community, and then looking at the size of the problem of, of engineering creativity into gaps in, in security that ultimately a bad guy's going to take advantage of. And then I think on top of that, the fact that, like, those things are always going to evolve. So you can't just create software to fix a problem because it's only going to represent that point in time. Um, that was the stuff I was thinking through, uh, you know, as I came up with the idea for Bugcraft. And the thing that actually prompted it was was kind of touching on your question there. Um, you know, I went to uh, on a trip to Melbourne to uh, to you know, meet with a bunch of customers I was doing pen tests for, and Facebook and Google had been talking about their bug bounty program um, publicly. They just started to do that, so this is right at the very beginning of you know folks kind of shouting from the rooftop about the stuff. Um, and I'd already been experimenting with what we just talked about with the whole like more people creates a disproportionately better outcome than one person thing in, in the company I was running at the time. So I was thinking this direction from a solution standpoint, but everyone wanted to talk about bug bounty. So, um, yeah, I kind of lent into it. It's like, yeah, this makes sense, right? If you've got an army of adversaries, then an army of allies, just it's logical to be able to access that. Like, this seems simple. Like, why aren't you doing it? That's the question that I'd ask. And they all said the same things. Like, I'm afraid of hackers. I don't know how to pay someone in Uzbekistan. Um, you know, my security team is too busy already. Um, I'm afraid of volunteering to listen to the internet. Um, and it was actually on the flight home where the light bulb went off. And like, they all said the same thing. Like, if I can actually solve those operational challenges, um, then all of a sudden we can, like, take this latent potential and plug it in to this unmet demand. And, and that and was kind <clears> of <throat> how Bugcraft started. And the alternative is you either get hacked or they go full disclosure or they just sit on these bugs forever because they don't want to deal with the companies. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that was that was one of the big things to overcome because going back to you know the objections, the first one was I'm afraid of hackers, and I think that that like that's, fear, a, that's, a, that's a healthy fear. <laughs> yeah, I, well, it, <clears throat> yes and no. Um, like the CFAA was was written, you know, legend has it, and I've had this confirmed, but then I've had people say, oh, that's just a story, but legend has it that the CFAA is the product of um, Ronald Reagan watching war games mm. uh, at Camp David and freaking out and going to the DOJ and saying, we need a law to make sure that that never happens. And then the CFAA popped out of that, right? And you look at the impact of the CFAA on good faith hacking, I would say that it's actually been more impactful. Like that fear of hackers has actually done more to damage the ability for people that hack in good faith to actually do helpful things than it has, you know, stop cybercrime. Oh, true. <laughs> no, no, no absolutely true. But, uh, but we, we can be a fairly nasty bunch of people if we, that are, is true. If we are motivated we're in powerful. that direction. Like, we're powerful. And, mm -hmm. and I think anything that's powerful, um, you know, anything that's powerful is inherently dual use. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to, to me, that's what it comes back to. You know, people being afraid of hackers, that's not a bad thing. Um, if, if that fear is more an understanding of, like, what we're able to do, not an inherent fear of us as a, you know, we don't have in, like 
inherent intent to harm, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, like yes. <laughs> so with disclosure, you know that that whole thing, like leading into that period, um, you know, you've got Loft, you've got you know Call of the Dead Cow, you've got like all these different hacker groups through the '90s and even you know before that, there were kind of catching on to the idea that like people really suck at writing software and computers do things that they're not meant to when that happens and we can take advantage of that. So that was already kind of known, um, but I think the people writing the code weren't ready to hear it. And this is where, you know, you end up with these massive debates about, or these, these massive kind of arguments, um, you know, when, when someone tries to disclose a vulnerability, um, you know, it's, it's basically someone coming in and, and calling your baby ugly. And if you're not prepared to hear that, that's confronting, right? Um, I think that's kind of the genesis of, of why there was so much friction and why this blew up into such a big thing in the first place. And it kind of carries forward today, honestly. Like, we still see that all the time. Um, it's not a solved problem, but it's something that I think people are talking about openly now. So solving it when it happens is a lot quicker. So walk me through what a typical bug bounty program sort of soup to nuts to actually getting and paying for vulns. Like, how does that whole process kind of work? Yeah, for sure. Um, the yeah, a, a bug bounty. Well, first thing there is bug bounty means a lot of different things to a lot of different people at this point in time. Like when I say that that term, um, what I'm thinking um, as I say it is basically a vulnerability disclosure program with rewards on top, which is the NIST 853R5 definition, which we helped write. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, that worked out well. Um, but the idea of like a, a VDP is basically going out to the open internet and saying, hey, if you see something, let me know. And this is how to do that, and this is how I'll react. It's neighborhood watch for the internet. Um, a bug bounty is when you say, if you see something and say something, and I end up doing something, then I'll reward you for that. Um, and, and that's kind of how that all came about. And that kind of public version of bug bounty is, uh, is an interesting one because I think not many companies are actually ready to do that. I think I think everyone needs to have a vulnerable disclosure program. You know, that disclosure program needs to have safe harbor so that hackers feel like they're not going to get their door kicked in mm -hmm. if they try to help, like all that kind of stuff. Um, at this point in history, that's just a part of being on the internet. Everyone should do that. But then the idea of saying, hey, we'll give you 50,000 bucks if you if you shell, shells from the outside, um, you've got to be ready for that because when you go out to the internet and say that, like the internet responds, right? Mm -hmm. So to your question, you know, what does the ramp to that look like? Um, it's, you know, crawl, walk, run. It's, it's actually getting the organization comfortable with the idea that like, yeah, we screw up sometimes and, and like other people are going to find it and our responsibility is to actually encourage that and act and learn. Um, that's the first step and I think that's actually oftentimes the hardest for organizations to take because you have to admit failure, right? Yeah. Like I, personally, I think that, um, you know, transparency and, and humility in that sense is, is anti-fragile, it's resilient. So again, back to systems thinking, like it's actually a logical way to do security. But if you've built your organization with this idea of like, don't show imperfection ever, mm -hmm. then there's a cultural shift that comes with it that takes work right yeah so that to me is like step zero that, that, that is a pretty big hurdle for a lot of companies it really is yeah. and i and i i kind of sympathize you yeah. know they've worked hard on this thing they 
their board thinks that they're so good, uh, yep. and it turns out they're not very good. Well, no one's uh, perfect. That's the thing. Like, this, well, like and good and not good, but and, then like well, never some perfect. Of, some of these are really bad, and you no. know it. <laughs> they really need to be completely rewritten. Yeah. That, that doesn't happen that often, though. I'll be honest. Like in the probably thousands of apps I've looked at now, maybe even tens of thousands, I've only encountered maybe a couple dozen, I would say, scrap the whole thing and literally start from scratch. Don't even save the, the photos. Just, like, just <laughs> start over. <laughs> Nick it from all of it, yeah. No, totally, totally. Yeah, so, so like, that's, that's the first part is actually um, making that shift. And that happens either because an organization has decided to do it or they've been kind of forced to do it. Uh, and the two ways I think that happens is a good faith researcher coming in from the outside, mm-hmm. having that, like, very awkward first conversation you know getting over that hump and then hopefully that carries forward and it becomes a proactive thing or they get breached <laughs> like something bad happens for real and it's right. like oh okay we do suck at this we need help getting better at it right um so that to me is step zero when it comes to disclosure uh and then going from there you know oftentimes what we'll what we'll do with customers is actually run a bug bounty program um in private and then kind of ramp that up over time uh, once they feel like you know they're not going to get completely hosed um, but also once they build out you know the ability to basically do stuff with the volumes that they get sent um, mm-hmm. that's when you know you're ready to go public at that point in time mm-hmm. and that can take years and I think for some organizations they actually never get there because they shouldn't you know like you talk about like a hundred year old company that's been semi on the internet for 40 years um, that's a lot of real estate mm. and getting that all ready to be able to receive this type of input from everyone in the form of a public bug bounty they, they, that's they probably not a great idea yeah, they, <laughs> they probably just don't have enough staff to manage it yeah exactly so this is why <clears throat> we've got that the other side of what we do as bug crowd which is more like crowdsourcing than it is disclosure I, I actually try to distinguish the public version of what we do from the private one very sharply because mm-hmm. they they look the same. <clears throat> so is that more like Bumble for uh, Volm yeah, than kind of as opposed to Match.com where they both are? Kind yeah, of yeah. So the public stuff actually doesn't have any matching involved. Mm-hmm. You're literally just going out and saying, "Hey, internet, tell me stuff." Mm-hmm. So like matching doesn't come into play there. Um, you know, but, a lot the, of, but the Bumble version where I'm like, I want these types of like. I, there's a specific cohort I want to do this type of testing. I want them to be tr- extra trusted or extra vetted for whatever reason. Yeah, two dimensions there, really, um, is, is a lot of what it boils down to. Um, trust, which is a filter, and then skill, which kind of goes into traits, like how likely is romance and that stuff we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, trust we're has... really stretching this analogy. I know. <laughs> I love it, though. It's love. <laughs> Even screwed that up. Um, no, it's 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 a fun one. I I, I think yeah, I mean a lot of my job as a as a founder and as an entrepreneur is to try to take really weird abstract stuff and and give it to people that are hearing it for the first time and have them grok it. Mm-hmm. Right, so uh, metaphor central. Okay, um, right. good. That's right. the thing. But we're, we're doing it. Then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but going back to the um, yeah. So yeah, the 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 private version of what we do. That's exactly right. Like that's where it's it's really about you know who are the best people to to um to look at this platform going back to what you asked about trust like if we're doing we do a lot of government work um, sometimes there's clearances required sometimes Mm -hmm. there's geo restrictions Um, there's the fact that like we've got probably I think half a million or so people signed up on the platform at this point in time not every not everyone of them knows that you have to wear a suit and tie to work every now and then right and that's fine 
but if we're working with a financial services company that expects you know professionalism and a certain degree of like there's whatever there's there's a decorum expectation mm-hmm. um we don't want to screw that up for the hacker or for them or for us and so like that's a part of what we know as well right um so there's all these different dimensions to that, and then there's the skill stuff that we talked about before. And so then they they say these things are in scope, right? They, they, they'll say, like, these 20 websites, I want to test it or whatever, or whatever the, it, the scope looks like. The hackers then start. Like, what is the like what is their experience? What, the, what do the hackers do? Yeah, they look at the – well, in, in, the, in the private version, um, they'll get an invite. Um, the invite will give them enough – Detail for them to decide whether or not they want to play, basically. Um, and you know, once it launches, like they accept um, because there's an invitation. There's going to be, you know, in the suit and tie example, um, you know, we expect you to. This is more like a pen test than it is like a, a disclosure. So like we expect you to adhere to NDA or whatever else it might be, and that's going to depend on the program, right? Um, if they agree to all of that, then when it starts, they get the brief that tells them what the target is, and and off they go from there. Um, mm-hmm. That's the very simple public, like publicly addressable site version. Um, you know, the the like we've got live hacking events happening all week down here in Vegas, where we've actually flown people in to do physical testing mm-hmm. on stuff. So like that's targets, cool. yeah, targets that you can't access <clears throat> across the internet. Um, you know, what, what like give me an example of one. Um, cars, so we're not doing cars right now. Um, so I can, you know, use that as an example. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, like a vehicle is, you can't send them out to hackers and say, hey, can you test on this thing necessarily? Um, mm-hmm. You know, bringing people in to be able to look at it is easier. Um, we've done, you know, automotive hacking events where it's been a prototype vehicle. So like this thing's going to be released next year. We actually don't want to let it out of the garage, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to be able to actually control that intellectual property. And yeah. in cases like that, do you have them sign pretty strict non-disclosure agreements, I'd yeah. imagine? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that, going back to what I said before, that becomes a condition of... And, I, and that's honestly trying to be respectful of disclosure principles as well. Because mm-hmm. it's like, if you don't agree with that, that's okay. Like, you don't have to participate. And by the way, we actually understand why you're doing that. But that's really not what we're talking about and not what we're trying to get done here. We're just trying to get access to the right talent to, to make this thing safer, right? Totally. So yeah, and versions of that where you know we're connecting across the internet as well. It's not all like flying people around and, and doing physical stuff. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways that happens. But that core idea of you get an invite, you accept it. When it starts, you get the brief. You go. That's pretty much how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so I find a vulnerability. Yep. I upload it into the system, and then what happens? Yeah, so at that point, um, what will happen, we've got a, a pretty large um, triage team. So, so one of the things that was really interesting early on uh, that we learned um, was that, you know, listening to the internet is hard. <laughs> like crowdsourcing is incredibly effective at finding new things, but it's inherently noisy mm-hmm. as well. So like, what do you do about that noise? This is unstructured data. They're just uh, Yeah, well, <laughs> and then there's that. I mean, there's a whole, <laughs> like on the platform side, we've, there's a lot from a, um, a data structuring standpoint, like everything goes into a graph. We've got data pipelines that apply ML to clean things up and like there's all sorts of fancy stuff mm. happening under the hood. Cool. Um, but a part of it is is actually informed by this this um, ASE team, we call them, which is a, a, a bit of a white hat nod, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they, they, they ultimately 
operators translators because uh, one of the things that we noticed early on is that like not only do we have two groups of people that don't have a rich history of understanding each other <laughs> so we might need to help with that part like if you've got a kid who's Pakistani and English is a second language trying to speak to a, a, a company in Menlo Park um, mm -hmm. you might have a problem there so like how do we actually help with that right. and make sure that everyone understands each other and you know the other part is that if anything is unfair or if it goes off the rails like we'll actually step in hmm. and, and try to bring balance to that and that's happening less and less now i think as, as kind of norms get established but early on it was well does a lot of work <laughs> <laughs> yeah well just to, as you were talking the about this graph in the back end i bet you could pull some pretty interesting metrics on the kinds of things that get found, the kinds of people who tend to find things, yep. sort of the marriage between what the data looks like beforehand. Yeah, and, and romance even, analogy again, Robert. And, and actually <laughs> predict the likelihood of finding vulnerabilities ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Is um, it, across, are you trying to produce any of that data like, publicly? Across all tech stacks, too. So this yeah. is not just a web thing. Of course. Like we're getting into, we've been really in... Um, you know, embedded security, mobile security. Um, we've actually been doing ML and AI testing since 2018. Mm -hmm. um, like OpenAI is a customer, and I feel like ChatGPT has kind of dumped well, this idea. I should probably tell you about all the stuff I'm finding, but <laughs> you should. No, you absolutely should because like they'll pay you for that, and they actually uh, want to hear it, right? Yeah, sure. Um, but you know the um, uh, yeah, like uh, the, there's like technology is always evolving, and that's a part of what I love about wading through the data that we've got. Um, you've basically got an answer to the question, like, what is a bug actually worth? Which is a hard question to solve and actually informs a lot of things upstream. So that's the thing I like most about our data set. And yeah, to your question before, we, we publish that stuff like mm -hmm. a lot. Oh, um, good. Yeah. I have not seen that. That's yeah. great. So um, you mentioned earlier about the difficulty of getting money to from this company to somebody in Uzbekistan or wherever, right? Some sure. crazy place. Um, I mean, I'm assuming everybody just is at kind of a 1099 and trying to work through some sort of you know, like independent consultant relationship with you. But <clears throat> what about people who just really want to get paid in Bitcoin or something and want to be fully anonymous? Like yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, at this point, I'll, I'll point out, I'll call out the fact that um, we also do... So there's basically three engagement models, pay for effort, pay for task, and pay for success. So pay for effort is hourly, pay for task is complete the thing, pay for success is what we were just talking about, like the bug bounty model, mm -hmm. as, yep. as people think about it. Yep. Um, so that you know, there are different ways to get paid, and I think when people sign up um, and they want to do something that looks more like traditional pen testing, um, in a like go through this methodology sense, um, that's one of the ways that, you know, that engagement model looks quite different as well. So we're talking a lot about bug bounty we, here, but there's are. a ton of stuff that goes on. We are, and that's fair. I, I, but I think uh, how people get paid is, I think that makes a lot of people nervous. Yeah, uh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, look, we, um, so yeah, we support, I mean, <clears throat> it's, so building out of marketplaces. Bugrat's been an epic journey from, okay. from a build standpoint because there's so many dimensions to, to what has to actually get put together to make it work. Mm -hmm. um, the concept on the outside looks quite simple. But when you scratch the paint off, it's like, whoa, there's a lot there. Um, and payment management, you know, making sure, like last mile, um, you know, accounting, invoicing, like float management, all those different things. Uh, that's all 
stuff that we've had to had to build as a as a part of mm-hmm. you know and the whole thing. You, and you can't just go to some off the shelf company to do handling all this stuff for you. I'm imagining. Well, we did. I mean, that's you know, we we're constantly reassessing. You know, it's not all just going through Workday or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> we're constantly reassessing third party providers, but like there's parts of it that we just will always in house, and mm-hmm. there's things that will you know look for help right. and getting done. Uh, so yeah, we do get researchers say, you know, like, can I get Dogecoin or Bitcoin or whatever else? And and what we've done traditionally is is basically be as flexible as we can on that, but not infinitely so. Because mm. <laughs> if you you know let people ask for anything, then that becomes a scale issue. Right. Um, and in the meantime, you know, I think um, you know paying people in Bitcoin has been it's been an area that we've just kept a pretty close eye on from a policy standpoint. Because uh, you know, look at looking at the way that the SEC has gone back and forth around how it's going to drop the hammer and regulate mm-hmm. uh, in that area. Like even the volatility in Bitcoin itself, it's like, do we want to expose, you know, potentially ourselves, but then even the hackers to that? Mm-hmm. Um, do we, you know, do we make a decision to deny that as an option or not? So like, those are the kinds of things that you know. What do you? What is your current feeling on it? Um, that obviously, it could change, but what, yeah, what no, are you look, I, I think. <clears throat> yeah, that that goes into a much bigger conversation. I think there's just general volatility around the way the money moves, and you know who can so, send it to who. So it's who a no for now. It's a no for now for in now. terms of yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't blame you. I, um, I think some of that comes down to knowing your customer, and the customer is kind of a weird way to phrase it in a sense, but you know what I mean. Yeah. The banking sense of knowing your customer, not the not the actual. They are your customer, but in some ways they are. I mean, you're giving yeah. them. You are basically the product that they are purchasing with their time. Yeah. And uh, the regulation that drives that is literally called KYC. Know your customer. Yeah. So, so like we need to know who we're paying, um, just from a pure financial responsibility standpoint. Um, but then there's a layer on top of that, which is like OFAC and SDN and, mm-hmm. and different things like that, where we need to make sure we're not paying someone in a part of the world where, as an American company, we're not allowed to pay them. Mm-hmm. Um, or if they're you know, connected to a terrorist organization, like all that kind of stuff. So like, those are all things that um, you've got to factor in building something like this. And the interesting thing that I've gotten to see over 10 years is that it's actually quite fluid, right? Like you look at like the, the parts of the world that you could pay without a problem 10 years ago versus today, like they're very different. Um, and I would expect, you know, I'm, my feeling is that, you know, the, the shifts in, in that kind of setup are, are likely to become more fluid over time, just given what all's happening in the world. So mm-hmm. we've got to factor that in. Yeah. yeah. And you might have to change it at any moment, depending on what rules and, and we've had to do that too. Like the, when, um, the, uh, when the conflict in Ukraine kicked off, there was a lot of, like very fast and very fancy footwork that we had to do. Interesting. Because, you know, the Ukrainian hacker population is huge. Yeah. Uh, and and they're amazing, right? But all of a sudden it's like, where's the border? And like, how do sanctions work? And what uh-huh. are they going to look like tomorrow? And that was a, you know, they had a far worse time in that period than we did, but it was mm-hmm. a, a pretty interesting I bet. <clears throat> time. So how did the industry at large, when you came, you're, you're now a product, like how did the industry sort of react? Because... You you kind of created this truly a brand new market that never mm. existed. There was no there was nothing like this before this. Um, so how, what were sort of the reactions from both the hackers and the industry? To think back on that one, mixed. Um, pen testers got really upset 
that was like one of the big things that happened. I actually mm-hmm. came out swinging probably a little bit too hard um, because you know one of the the, the early things that I did um, when I was still kind of solo was prototype the model. The idea of like, can we get 20 people to hunt on this thing and get paid based on success, you know, whatever else. And I've been doing pen testing from a career standpoint for a long time at that point. Um, the output from doing that was like night and day. So I'm like, okay, this is going to work. Like we've got, we've got, you know, raw kind of problem solution fit. Um, and as things got going, that was repeatable. Like we'd go into pretty much any organization that we that we worked with and, and cause, you know, an oh shit moment for them just because of the difference in, in firepower being applied to the problem. Mm-hmm. So I, I probably got a little cocky at that point and said like, <laughs> hey, pen testers, you suck and this is awesome. And you know, I, I think that was kind of true. Like pen testers in general, um, the bulk of them at that point in time, especially in Australia was we're doing kind of the you know Nessus Plus like tick and flick type of report, and the unfortunate thing is that there's pen testers that kick ass that are doing really good work that kind of got caught up in that. So yeah. I kind of I messed that up a little bit, um, <laughs> and they all got quite mad. Um, so that was that was definitely a part of the the reaction, and it's been inter- interesting seeing that kind of thing evolve over the past ten years as well. We can come back to that. Um, yeah, the market in general was intrigued. I think that was probably the biggest thing. Uh, you know, the, there was folk that wanted to jump straight into it. There was a couple of companies that we worked with, with early on that just jumped on it straight away to be cool, frankly, like riding the hype train. Like um, the Microsofts, for instance. They were very early to the game. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, this, that's that predates us. In, yeah, I know, in, no, in, I know, but they, I, I think they were, they were an interesting... I think they really just wanted to be cool. Uh, this wasn't about finding bugs for them. I think that they needed to find a way to ingratiate themselves with the hacker community with whom they had a very weird adversarial relationship for mm. a long time. Mm. And I think other people seeing Microsoft being cool for doing this, mm. and Microsoft's an old, stodgy company. It really is. It's a very old company. So to suddenly have this... Um, you know, throwing these massive parties and doing everything they can to ingratiate themselves. I think that helped your business a lot. One hundred percent. And and I actually do think that cool plays a role. Like our our you know the my other computer is your computer <laughs> T-shirt. I joke sometimes that like Bug Crowd's a swag company that dabbles in cybersecurity. Because right? <laughs> you know, anyone who knows this knows that why yeah. I say that. Yeah. Um, yeah, the first time we came out to, to Vegas, um, it was five people in the company. Um, you know, it was our first time, as I mentioned before. And I'm thinking, okay, how do we let people know that we're here? Um, and, you know, came up with the idea for that T-shirt. And our strategy was basically to print, I think, a thousand of those shirts and then come up with a design that was cool. Like this idea of like, okay, a hacker's going to look at that and, and feel kind of badass and, and want to put it on. Um, but also, like a CISO, a buyer, who's peeking over the fence at all this stuff, they're going to look at it and probably want to put it on too. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we like nail that that midpoint with the cool factor and with the message in a way that brings everyone together? Did and you like, come up with that? Yeah. Of course you did. Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> um, Why are you the CTO? You should be the uh, chief marketing officer. <laughs> well, I, was the f- I mean, I'm always the, the f- <clears throat> founder. It's like I you know. wear all I'm the hats in, in some capacity, especially <laughs> early on. Um, 
but yeah like that like that 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 cool factor i think you know we we observed you know because by the end of that week it looked like 400 people worked for bug crowd mm-hmm. and everyone's like who's this bug crowd and it worked like as a as a guerrilla marketing tactic just in general it was really effective but i think that you know what i just called out that cool factor and and the bringing together of you know the different groups mm-hmm. i think that's why it worked I think I think you were also coming onto the scene at the perfect inflection point at which hackers were suddenly realizing we're doing all this full disclosure stuff and we are not getting paid. Mm. And so there is this these two guys, um, uh, Dino Dezovi and Alex Sodorov, who went on stage no at, bugs, yeah. and had this big kind of cardboard sign. There's this one janky photo of it. It's so something they put together like 10 minutes before they went on stage or whatever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it just said, no, fr- no more free bugs. <clears throat> I think the industry... <clears throat> I think the industry didn't know what to do with that at first. Yeah, They're like, yeah... You know, conceptually, we we don't think that our time and energy should be fully wasted. We should be paid for what we're doing. Hmm. But how? <clears throat> like, how is that going to work? Well, are we gonna what extor- is it, are we gonna is it ex- worth? Are we also, we're going to extort them. Yeah. Like, what do we? Because that was really what I think that was what everyone was saying. I guess we're just going to have to extort everybody f- to get paid. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, y- yeah. I mean, uh, like the other thing that just sprang to mind as you, as you were saying that. Um, you know, this is all like these kind of very early prototypes and whatnot. That was 2012. Um, first time we landed in the US was April 2013, which was the same month that Snowden did his thing. <laughs> Great um, timing. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And, and But, you know, and not to, you know, whatever around, around that, but I think the net impact of that event is it made everyone realize that, oh, this hacking thing actually does impact me. Like as a consumer mm-hmm. right it's like i don't know what the heck's going on i don't know what they're talking about it's a very good point yeah but i know that it somehow affects me because i saw it on the news mm-hmm. i think prior to that like you know the general population hadn't really had that thought yet um and and i, I do think that a lot of the you know what we see now which is basically consumer pressure driving security in a lot of ways or, or at least the appearance of security um started then right Prior to that, no one cared. You know, it's That's like pe- true. people like you and me, like screaming from a street corner, trying to get people to like do a better job. And like sometimes you'd find someone that wanted to, and you could work with them. But for the better part, people just didn't care. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's been, I mean, from an industry standpoint in general, in a way that affects everyone, not just hackers or mm-hmm. companies or whatever. It's like the whole thing. Um, I think that, and to a little, uh, to, and to a lesser extent, OPM were the two big ones and Snowden was really bad but it it was sort of like kind of theoretically really bad so, but OPM on the other hand that affected every government worker and they're like what? 100% <laughs> so I've got I've got a narrative arc around this it's like um, 2013 Snowden hacking happens um, 2014 was the year of the retail credit card breach mm-hmm. so 60% of the US gets its card replaced mm-hmm. um, hacking happens to me 2015 was OPM. It was also actually Madison. Mm-hmm. So like, hacking happens to me, and it hurts. I yeah. can't ensure that. Right. 2016 election stuff. Roll it forward. You know, all of a sudden you've got COVID, and like, you know, hacking is my my risk is determined by my five year old because I work from home now. <laughs> it's just gotten progressively crazier ever since then. 
And I think that that sort of um, snowballing awareness and that snowballing understanding, because you're right, like 2013 with Snowden was, was a nascent, like, theoretical thing, but it, it became progressively more real. Mm-hmm. Like the colonial pipeline attack. Yeah. I can't put gas in my car because of hackers. As a, like, someone not in our space, like, you're getting an education pretty quickly with, with an event like that. And it's just continued to mount up. So, mm-hmm. yeah, never, never being one to want a trash fire to go to waste. I think right. I, I actually do give that phenomenon a lot of credit for where we all are today. Absolutely. And, and we'd been talking about it for at least a decade or maybe, maybe even longer than that, that there's going to be these uh, <clears throat> digital Pearl Harbor event where everyone's going to know because it's going to impact them. Mm. And we never really reached that point um, where it was truly like, you know, a groundswell, the entire nation needs to do something today. Mm. But we've had a lot of little, very bad things happen, yep. and progressively, it seems like they're 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 both worse and f- happening more often. Yep. Because um, when I was getting started, it it was all theoretical. Like, could this happen? Yeah, I think maybe. Yeah. We talk about taking down like massive things. People yep. would write books like taking down a, how to own a continent or whatever. You know, and, like it's all theory. But then all of a sudden it started happening on a pretty regular cadence. So yeah, I think yeah, helps. for sure. And you know, coming back to like how did hackers react to to bug crowd and how did the market react to bug crowd? Like, you know, for me that timing was like fifty percent like foresight on my part and fifty percent just pure serendipity. Great, <laughs> great timing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it just worked out. <laughs> right time, um, right place. And you know, to 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 the credit of everyone who was involved in in those early days of bug crowd, like we became aware of that very quickly and, and kind of put our sails up mm-hmm. to, to, to ride that tailwind. So, you know, the idea that like, okay, the, the, the market in general is becoming more and more aware, like let's help it do that. Um, and then let's, at the same time as we're doing that with the buyer, teach the hacker that they are actually a part of that. Mm-hmm. And, and go, going back to what you were saying before, I think the no free bugs thing, um, you know, we didn't know how valuable, we knew what we were doing was valuable back in the day. Um, we just didn't know how to articulate that value. And, and I don't think we felt confident enough to actually ask, um, uh, you know, pre, pre-2013. So mm-hmm. um, that's definitely different. You know, you come down here to Vegas and there's however many 70,000 hackers in the desert right now, mm-hmm. um, which to me is testament to the fact that we've figured it out yeah. at this point in time. <laughs> for better 105 degrees and you got a lot of guys in black t-shirts. Yeah. And yeah, honestly, like it, it's in a talk that I give like pre-2013, like rip good times in some ways because I think, um, you know, cybersecurity becoming commercially viable and then, you know, gradually maturing over the past decade, it's created a, lo- a lot of opportunity. It's created, you know, improvement in different areas and defense and whatever else. Um, I do sometimes miss when it was just for the little walls. Me too. Me too. It's been very heavily commercialized. (laughs) So uh, this is a nice segue. Um, I get the impression that before Bug Crowd existed, um, we had a very small market for security. The entire security Mm. market was very tiny. And that wasn't just because there weren't many vendors in the space. Mm. Like people just didn't believe that they were vulnerable. Like it was... It was guys like me out there, like saying, I'm finding cross site scripting everywhere. And, you know, a bunch of other guys in the forum, like, we're finding cross site scripting, SQL injection, command injection, like everywhere, everywhere. And we just keep posting about it on our full disclosure forum. And there's a bunch of other people doing this. There's a full disclosure mailing list, et cetera, like trying to educate people that this is happening everywhere. This is not just one or two small companies. 
but yet the market was still very small, very small. Then you came, and so then there was the DAST companies out there, and yep. they were like, okay, we're going to commercialize on the few people who understand this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some companies are getting it. You know, they had hundreds of customers, not thousands, hundreds of customers. And then you came along, and I think what ended up happening is kind of a dual effect. First of all, the number of volumes was suddenly expanded tremendously. So it wasn't just there wasn't just like the twenty or the so. The knowledge of them, yeah. Well, yes, correct. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The suddenly the finding of them became doable, and it was so pervasive. Every company is finding many, many of them. So that opened the the the, the aperture of of the scope of the problem. But then, duly, it seemed like there was suddenly a race to the bottom. You made it much cheaper mm. to get these volumes found yep. than ever before. Because before DAS companies, it was manual penetration testing. This yep. is custom. These are very skilled people, very rare skilled people. Then DAS, you know, it, now you have automation. You can reduce the costs. You can scale this thing out, and you somehow managed to even bring it further down. So. I'm curious to see from your perception. This is my perception. Yeah, no. Uh, I'm curious to see what you like, how you see that whole thing. I, look, I mean, security is fundamentally a, a, a design problem in terms of it needing to be simple. It's a marketing problem in terms of it needing to be obvious. Mm-hmm. And then it's an economics economics problem. I forget the trip over there. <laughs> economics problem. There you go. Um, in the sense that, like, people don't like put bars on the windows of their house unless they realize they're in a bad neighborhood mm-hmm. like why would you do that why would you go to the expense of on of, the internet that you're always in a bad neighborhood <laughs> yeah well this, <laughs> that comes back to the marketing problem like they don't know that yeah right so so you know this, this economics piece i think um you know a, a big part of uh why i kind of came out swinging against pentest the way i did you know back in the day was um you know looking at companies that were paying hundred bucks a day to people somewhere in the world, you know, marking it up to $2,500 a day out to the street and everyone walking away from that happy. Yeah. Like that's a, that's a supply demand imbalance. Like Mm -hmm. something's very badly wrong with that market. If everyone's walking away from that deal with a smile on their face. And part of the problem, this actually was a a big catalyst for starting bug crowd as well. I was looking at that and thinking, okay, who's losing? Because like they're all winning, you know the, the 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 buyer, the pen test company, and the contractor are all winning out of this. So someone has to be losing here because the thing that they're buying is not actually getting done, um, and it's the user. Mm-hmm. It's literally the user. It's everybody else. It's like everybody else, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, that's I want to call bullshit on that. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's it's not so much about triggering a race to the bottom as it was about redistributing the economics. Of, of on discovery in a way that gave the yeah. user a better shot. I don't, I don't mean to sound like that's a bad thing, exactly. No, yeah, not for sure. It's just, it just the cost per volume went down substantially because of your model. Yeah. Not just a little bit. But I think that ended up causing another ripple, um, which was now we know that companies aren't worth nearly as much as they think they are. They have sort of this unrealized loss that they just haven't actually accounted for yet. Um, there's vulnerabilities out there that could be exploited that just no hacker has bothered to yet. 
Um, but when a hacker decides, hey, they look like a juicy target and tries for a while, they're in. Mm. So until somebody like you comes along and says, look, you're not worth as much as you think you are, but you could be worth a lot less if you don't cl- you know, clean this up. You, if you got you know, seven, like 90% of these volumes closed, you'd get, you know, probably 80% of your value back. There's still probably one or two volumes out there that no one's ever going to find, or, you know, it'd take a state actor to find it or something. Mm. But we'll get, we'll clean up like way more than 90% of those just by having really awesome people probing at this thing all the time. So by dropping the the cost of volume, you've actually made these companies worth closer to what they think that they're worth. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know that's a kind of a complicated yeah, thought. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm trying to like, I'm like whiteboarding it in I my can head. Literally, as you see <laughs> the math flying by. <laughs> I think I get what you say. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I think um, what we did and what we did very deliberately was to drop the cost of access to highly impactful volumes. I think that was the, the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. So the idea, because like Dast at that time, you could go out and and spray a set of targets and, and find things that you like did need to go off and fix. Um, but, you know, green doesn't mean you're clean at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was, you know, the, the idea of the market getting confused between assurance and actual risk management. Um, like, we're, we're still confused about that 10 years later. But, yeah. like, back then it wasn't even really something that people were thinking about. So the idea of saying, cool, I've checked and I found nothing. Um, you know, proof, like absence is proof. It's proof of absence. <laughs> Job done, right? We basically came in and said, "Sorry, you missed some stuff," um, and, and we like drastically reduced the cost and improved the probability of success in in, in that. And, and made exercise. everyone safer in the process. Yeah, and, and kind of, you know, I mean, part of what was cool about that step was was having the market realize, like, oh, we suck at this. Like, we're actually really bad at this because um, I think leading into that, there was quite a bit of hubris mm-hmm. um, you know, from a security standpoint and, and like this is like in the really early days of AppSec even and, and, and that kind of thinking um, I was there yeah I know you were <laughs> yeah shout out to the OGs but like yeah that, that idea that like oh you know we have to because you know you and I were out there trying to tell people but I think what Bug Crowd and, and you know ultimately the space that we ended up starting demonstrated is that or, or gave the market the ability to receive was a demonstration of the fact that it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, There's so many companies out there that are just, the second they know about it, then they have to fix it. They, oh. you know, they're on the hook to fix it. And so that's, the, I think that's got to be your biggest sales hurdle right there, right? I just don't want to know. Yeah, so due diligence versus due care is definitely a thing. Um, and there's actually a, a legal reason for, for companies to do that. Mm-hmm. I think we're at a point now I mean, mm-hmm. sort of goes off to some of the stuff that we've done around policy to actually, like, change that, mm-hmm. like, change the law. If you can't change the behavior, like, try to change the law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> change the incentives, of, yeah. Yeah, we'll change the environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that's an approach that we've taken, um, which has worked in a lot of areas, which is kind of cool. Um, but, yeah, like, the idea of, like, we need to fix it as soon as we get told about it, like, I just don't want to know. And, you know, I call that ostrich um, risk management. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think the thing is that, you know, through the, the past 10 years, it went from being a thing that was pretty much what everyone did to, like, this kind of ascending um, evidence of the fact that, like, shit happens if you do this badly. Um, maybe that's not a good idea. And now we're at a point where, like, the SEC, like, the the rules that they just passed, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, some of the different things that are happening for, from a regulatory standpoint have, you know, the business now saying to security and to engineering and to everyone else who's a stakeholder, like, no, you can't do that. Um, you actually have to get it right, um, which creates another ripple of, like, there's too many vols, how do we do this? Um, but, you know, I, th I think mm -hmm. that idea of just ignoring it and hoping it, it will go away. Um, or, or at least I won't have to do anything today. Nothing bad will happen. <laughs> um, yeah, it's I it's I, very I, silly, but I see it very frequently. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that you say that because, like, I feel maybe I've got bias because of the yeah, you, kind of you're, you're just definitely confirmation <laughs> bias. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent, or survivor bias, or I don't know what it is. Some something. Sort of bias. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like that one's getting. I mean, it's at the very least, it's an easier conversation to have. I found mm -hmm. um, the idea, like, no, mm -hmm. like you're actually, you know, you have to deal with this stuff. The fact that you're ignoring it doesn't mean it's not going to be exploited, mm -hmm. and if and when it's exploited, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be held to account for that. Yeah. Well, why don't we talk, since you mentioned a couple times the policy stuff, I'd mm. love to hear what you're doing in that space. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, part of the, the goal of, of starting Bugrad was to change the operating environment for hackers, as I, as I mentioned before. And, um, you know, it, that quickly became a thing that involved trying to change the law, like seeing, you know, the CFAA um, get rewritten ultimately is the goal, but you know, in the last... To, to what end? What do you want to do to it? Um, I did, I'd tip it upside down. So so the idea of... You have to break it. <laughs> no, well, actually... <laughs> you I must mean, steal. <laughs> so the, proposals, the proposal we put into Senate Justice in 2019 is, is actually pretty much smack on. They, they did use it, and there was a ton of other stuff that went into it. But it's pretty much bang on with the charging rule guideline changes they released at the beginning of last year, I think it was. And it's basically saying, you know, previously the CFAA was like, if you're doing a bad thing to a computer, you're automatically a felon and you have to prove that you aren't, right? Which is, there's all sorts of things wrong with that. Yes. Um, but if you flip it upside down, it's, it's like, okay, if you do a bad thing and you happen to have used a computer to do that, now you've violated CFAA. So it's... Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's pretty simple as, as a fix. Um, and yeah, it's it's halfway there. Uh, you know, the charging rule changes mean that um, basically a prosecutor uh, won't try a case unless you can demonstrate bad faith. So as a security researcher, if you can, like if you don't steal stuff and break things and, and, and you know, commit any kind of traditional crime, um, then you've got no kind of demonstration of, of malintent um, so you're not going to get prosecuted on the CFA I am not a lawyer by the way no, all that yeah, other stuff yeah, I'd play yeah. one on TV but yeah like those, those kind of changes are the ones that we've tried to push through because you know otherwise hackers are scared like we're chilled well they should should be scared <laughs> Um, no, so, we shouldn't be scared. So though. no, we we should be scared. I, I think we 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 have every right to be scared. One, so I very closely, in fact, I think it was exactly one year ago, almost to the day, I had a conversation uh, with Alex Romero, and we were talking about the. I know you weren't in this particular program, but the very first Hack the Pentagon program. We were actually. Oh, you were. Um, yeah, that's oh, okay. where I, when I met Roro. Oh, really? Okay. That, okay, yeah. great. I did not yeah. know that. Um, but. Uh, uh, effectively, the the general found out that I went way outside of scope and one rolled me up, uh, put me in jail. And uh, yeah. <laughs> later on, they changed the whole policy at the Pentagon to if you see say so, if you see something, say something policy. Yep. And that came from me and one other guy went too deep. I went too wide. Yep. Um, but 
had it not been for that, mm. there quite easily could have been some some someone going to jail. It could have been a guy like me. Yeah. And then similarly, I had another conversation this years ago with um with somebody at the White House, and I was talking about port scanning. I'm like, mm. like this is something that I should be able to do all day long as a researcher. Yep. No matter what, there should be no no stopping me from doing this, yep. unless I'm intentionally flooding somebody. Um, and even then, just stop it doing that specific thing. And uh, and uh, he's, and I, I'm, but I said, I, but I can't guarantee that I'm not going to go to jail. Mm. I can't guarantee I won't get sued out of existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's no legal protection for me at all. And you know what he told me? What? He said it sucks to be first. Because it's going to take somebody having some hackers having bad things happen to them until we get to this next phase. And the problem with that is that hackers are always on the bleeding edge. So we're quite likely to be first. I am very likely going to end up in jail for some (laughs) brand new thing that no one's ever seen before. Yeah. Um, I I think that that whole piece, and and like shout out to Roro um, as, as one of the folk that were actually a part of like championing that decision. Within the Pentagon, and honestly, the ripple effect that that caused. Uh, there's, there's been different examples of that, and he's like, him and I have been working on this kind of crap for years now. He's a dear friend um, and an absolute legend, and someone who deserves a lot, a lot of. I mean, he, he's like one of the actual superheroes. Yeah. He's actually 100%. doing uh, as good a th- thing as could be possibly done. And so. he's going to hate us saying all yeah, of this. Well, like, you guys, he, he, can to, <laughs> he can go to hell about that. But um, yeah, he, he, he's a good, he's a good egg. Mm. Um, so what what do you want to do next? Is it more CFFA, uh, CFAA work or is it... Uh, yeah, so, so I mean, so that, you know, CFAA in terms of changing the law, great. Um, so Disclose.io was, was basically a, a project that kind of popped up adjacent to Bug Crowd. Um, we realized early on that um, lawyers don't really, uh, you know, lawyers aren't super comfortable when you ask them to write a policy that says, hey, internet, come and hack this company. <laughs> Um, I can't imagine why not. And nervous lawyers <laughs> tend to get kind of verbose, right? So you end up with war and peace, and it's all of this like jargon, blah, 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 blah. Um, the problem that creates on the hacker side is that most hackers aren't lawyers. Um, you know, I think we've got a natural leaning towards being able to understand that stuff, but we're not lawyers most of the time. Um, and a lot of folk um, aren't even English as a first language. So the risk of accidentally getting something wrong at that point in time, since 2014, was like really, really high. Um, so what we did was to basically take, um, you know, different kind of bits of prior art uh, and, and start to actually codify it into an open source template that was simple, legally complete, and, and added this concept of legal safe harbor. So mm-hmm. the idea of like, okay, you know, against CFAA, you're you're authorized to conduct security testing against DMCA. Um, you're authorized against circumvention. Um, you're authorized against violation of terms of service. So you're not bumping into things like Aaron's law. Um, and we just think this is good. Like mm-hmm. you're doing a good thing. So like, how do you distill that into something that you know a, an Indian hacker can read? Um, well, if, they, if, if they're not native to that, and maybe just read once, and it's always the same every single time. Yeah, so that, was, that was part it. of the goal as well. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. So that was the design goal that became Disclose.io when we kind of merged it with what Berkeley was doing. Um, Amit Elazari and the folk there, and and that's kind of carried forward as this kind of skunkworks thing for for basically innovation around vault disclosure because it's a it's a globally hard problem to solve. Like the stuff that Bug Crowd does in terms of facilitating it is is 
a massive piece of it, um, but it's only one part of the puzzle. So, you know, Disclose IO is like the rest of it, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, out of that, you know, I think I think the goal for that is to see, you know, I said before, I think everyone should be doing this and it's increasingly just being mandated, um, like patch acts, like, you know, NISTATE, what is it, um, 20, 2001, uh, sorry, damn it. I believe you. <laughs> Binding Operational Directive 2001. Thank oh, you, okay, I had to right. picture it in my head. Um, <laughs> that forced all the federal government to do that. Like, yeah, right, there's right, all these different right. things that are coming down from the top saying you have to do this now. Um, you know, election security, like the Disclose IO boilerplate ended up in the, the guidance for election security um, administrators um, heading into 2020. And one of the reasons that we were pushing on that was this idea that like the fundamental integrity of election systems is going to come into question. Mm -hmm. um, it needs to be as secure as we can make it, but we also need to be able to explain to the general public some of the things that we're using to do that. Neighbourhood Watch for the Internet is something a voter, even if they're non-technical, can kind of understand. Mm -hmm. So, like, there was all different things that went in. That was... Are you saying I'm allowed to hack elections now? Yeah. <laughs> Let's some, do it. In some places, yeah. Yeah. And that was actually really... That's some of the most... Like, I'm, I'm proud of a lot of stuff that we've gotten to do with, with Bug Crowd and with Disclose.io. That's probably the most impactful work I've been involved in. Um, just looking at, you know... Because that's like the consequences of screwing that up are pretty massive, yeah, and, and we got to you know help out with that. So, yeah. So going forward with policy, um, seeing more people adopt VDPs, like getting more people involved in general. There's mm -hmm. a new generation of hackers that understand communication and policy in a way that I just won't. Like mm -hmm. I'm you know one of the cool kids, but we're kind of aging at this point in time, and, and think about the world in a different way to them, and they need to start talking. Mm -hmm. um, so like encouraging that and promoting that. I think specifically, um, state laws need to need to change. Like the the CFAA stuff's great, but it's federal, so you've got your Tenth Amendment, and then you got all mm -hmm. the different state things to pop up. That needs a lot of cleanup here in North America. Working on stuff in Australia, the UK, you know, there's a. I mean, that's never going to end. Right. Um, yeah. But just it. in general, making it more favourable <laughs> for people that hack in good faith to act as the internet's immune system. Um, and, and to, you know, limit this kind of autoimmune deficiency that we've had, you know, on the fear side, but also on the policy and re regulation side. Like, let's work on that and try to get it solved. Mm -hmm. So with regard to reducing the the time to find vulnerabilities, I think AI is just the new hotness all <laughs> yeah. over this conference and the last several months. So um, first of all, what do, you, what do you think about using AI and the bug bounty process um, and then how might that affect you guys yeah so uh, we've been using you know ml nlp and and large language models not in the very large sense um but actual llm tech within bug crowd for four five years um mm -hmm. so like the overall idea i think that's the same for a lot of technology companies we, we you know you see chat gpt drop and everyone's like oh my god there's this new ai thing it's like eh, it's not that new. The yeah. thing that's new is that everyone gets it now, right. uh, and that's all kind of happened all at once. Um, and you know, full props to everyone building cool stuff. But to me, that's the shift. Um, so you know, I, I think what I mean, OpenAI is a customer of ours. Like we've been hacking on models for for years. Um, you know, did a bunch of work on that around disinformation back in you know 2019, 2020. That's carried forward. Like all kinds of stuff like that. Um, 
and you know, there's new, you know, talking about the data before um, that we've got, you know, definitely that's one of the things I get to play around with in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, product ideas and ways to render like what the overall crowd is doing as it observes the overall state of the internet. That's mm -hmm. a fun thing that I get to work on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of hackers using it, like that, that they're just going to do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like that's literally what we saw. Um, you know, one of the really fun ones early on was seeing, you know, the ESL hackers actually use it as a trans, like a more effective translator to be able to get to communicate, right? Because like ultimately this all boils down to whether or not you can communicate effectively on both sides. Um, and, um, you know, natural language AI is a really powerful tool to help do that. So that's neat. That happens yeah. straight away. Um, what that does is it flattens the planet. Yeah, it does. <laughs> like you, you diversity that you unlock <clears throat> using tooling like that yeah, is... Well, to, to, to an extent, obviously, because uh, they're all using the same language. There's a great middling of the language, but... Uh, yeah. Which may it removes be. that as a barrier. Yeah, which yeah, I think is a really yeah. Good that's thing. I think that's a better way to. Phrase but then, it. from a tooling standpoint, I mean, it's it's pretty crazy. I think um, <laughs> you know one of the, the the funnest tools I've seen, actually saw this pretty early on, um, was um, you know taking like having an agent that spoke out to an LLM, um, and it was like Kali running on Kali Linux. Uh, you go out and do your recon, whatever else. It's feeding the output of that back to the LLM to say, okay, what next, right? So, yeah. you, like, you give it an objective, all those different things, and it will literally like auto hack um, and, and get you to your outcome. Yeah. And the that, reason that could, is that is uh, coming fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I saw that when I saw that, I'm like, oh, this changes everything. Yep. Like this completely tips our okay, so sense of cost upside down. So right? th this is a good uh, point to shift a little bit into another thing I know you guys are, have in your system, which is uh, an asset management system. Yeah, which, yeah, sure. Which which we had some some help in. Yeah. Um, but once you combine a little bit of AI and asset management and a knowledge of vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm you basically have a system that can do everything. I mean, it basically can do, and it probably can write the report for you and submit it for you. And <laughs> it's pretty close to getting the human out of the loop again. If you're talking about, so yeah, this, and this, I get asked about this a lot. Like attack surface management is actually a really good, it's actually the example I use to explain how I think AI is going to affect um, defensive testing going forward because you know the reason ASM came to be in the first place is, is a bunch of bounty hunters who are incentivized to discover things that like they're they're incentivized to discover the thing first right so if you're smart you're looking where other people aren't right and what that highlighted was the fact that we didn't know where our shit was on the internet right. like prior to that the the security model was to think about asset management in terms of what's inside this sandbox but cloud introduced this idea of like the entire internet is my network. I need to prove that that thing isn't mine. Um, and you know, along comes bounty, and all of a sudden, whoops, we've not been doing that good a job of that. So you know, the good hunters um, started building tooling to like automate that process. Then you know, one thing leads to another. All of, all of a sudden, they're building platforms, starting companies, blah 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And today, like that's not as viable a way to earn a bounty. Right. as it was back in 2013. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, me too. Right? Because like what, what we've done is we've actually used technology for the thing it's meant to be used for, which is automate the stuff that 
we kind of shouldn't be doing manually anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's literally how that played out. So like watching that happen, I, th- I think when people talk about that idea of automation, like allowing a higher order function by removing the need for a lower order one, mm-hmm. um, most of the time it's kind of theoretical, but like that's a real example that I've gotten to watch. And you've seen that too, right? Yeah, it's so pretty I, amazing. Yeah, so I think AI is going to do a similar thing. I did. I did a little experiment just one day. I I, I fed in ten URLs or t- ten domains, uh, and I said which one of these belonged to. I think I used Sears or something. Yeah. Um, and so, it it was not good. Um, it was better than I thought it was going to be. Um, there was one that was definitely hundred percent needed to be included, and the rest were not. Yep. But then I gave it context. I'm like, okay, what if you? What if I told you that this is what the who is looks like, and blah yep. blah. And I started adding the kind of context yep. that I, as a penetration tester, would definitely have. And all of a sudden, it gave as good an answer as Robert Hansen would have. Yep. Uh, so that reasoning and decisioning uh, decision engine, uh, despite people wanting to call it just like text complete or whatever, there's there's m- a lot more going on yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And the, the, so. the, the way the way I think about it, because um, at the end of the day, it's still reliant on human input huh. and human steering. Right. So, like the way the way that I talk about automation in general, but I think this especially applies to AI um, in the hands of hackers. It's like the Iron Man suit, right? Like the suit without the human is dumb, mm-hmm. but the human without the suit is weaker than they could be. You put them together, and all of a sudden, cool things happen. Um, and and you know I think that's that's kind of how this works. Like it's an incredibly powerful lever. The thing that's different about AI um, at this point in time is it's like the the um, availability, like the access yeah. and the time to. Well, and, and also the model, models have got a lot better. Well, and it's incredibly powerful. That was yeah. the other thing I was going to say. Like yeah. as a tool, like we haven't seen a step function shift in access to power like mm-hmm. this before, and I think that's that probably breaks some linearities in my own thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that kind of conceptual, you know, the role of creativity, I think, obviously I'm biased towards saying this given the line of work I'm in, mm-hmm. but um, I think it's true. It, you know, part of the reason for that is that like the adversary is creative. Like when we're doing this stuff to try to find ways to keep them out, if we're successful in doing that, they don't just pack up and go home. Like they innovate. They think of the next way to get past what we've done, and then th- there's this constant kind of cat and mouse game that goes on between you know adversary and, and defender. Um, I think the main impact of AI is that it just speeds that up, like the, iter- the iteration loop mm-hmm. um, between you know the two sides. Um, I was I able see to, that speeding up. I was able to do probably two to three days worth of research in. Uh, in the middle of a presentation someone was giving that I was that I was paying attention to and watching yep. just by knowing Brr. how to do it on my phone and it I mean I still will eventually have to clean it up and yep. turn it into a presentation but it, the time it, it saved me was just astronomical yep. and and I I'm not saying it's done but wow so much time spent that I would have not had to yeah you know so yeah it's it's I mean so that's that's me is is a pretty so like that kind of the speed, the iterative loop between attack and defense, um, that's a wild card because I, I can see that speeding up to the point where it breaks mm-hmm. and I, I actually can't get my head around what that might look like, mm-hmm. which I get worried when I can't do that. But that's a thing that's like, eh, I'm not quite sure there. Um, I, th- I think we'll see auto-hacking systems that can hack stuff in sub-seconds. Yeah. Like, uh, so you turn on the bug bounty program and there's already a report sitting in your inbox 
within a fraction of a second. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that happening. Um, yeah, it, I mean, to you know, it's like okay, if that gets, if what they're finding and reporting gets dealt with, then what? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the only thing I think slowing it down is that the reasoning engine itself might take us a couple of seconds. I think, <laughs> I think we're going to have a really hard time fixing everything as well. Oh yeah, like that's that's actually going to be the, the like the practical impact of that on the on. Although you never space. know, maybe maybe the AI systems will get better on the defensive side as well. Yeah, so yeah both, I think so. Both on the like auto remediation side, like the red shields of the world or whatever, mm. web application firewalls, as well as on the uh, just you know actually going into your Git repository. I was talking with a company; it's very stealth. They're, I think they're going to announce next week or something. Uh, they're they can do auto remediation straight straight through your Git repository, yeah. and and they're confident that they can do it better than a person. So the thing I love about that, um, and this this was actually a conversation I was having with people inside some of these companies at the end of last year, mm-hmm. um, like open source supply chain, like the, like the open source supply chain security problem isn't actually about finding the bugs, it's about fixing them, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Like finding bugs in open source software is like shooting fish in a barrel, it's right. not hard. Right. Um, you know, helping a maintainer who like powers half the internet in their spare time like that's the problem so to be able to use AI to actually create leverage around that particular problem that was one of the first things I thought of um, you know looking at this kind of text model that became available it's like that's a really useful defensive tool and we're going to eventually get around to doing that so mm-hmm. it sounds like along the lines of what yeah. you're describing that was yeah. just kind of cool yeah yeah very and we're talking about using the tool the other side is attacking it yeah so, yes yeah there's a lot of problems. Then with these. That. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Oof. I mean, I guess we could talk about that for a split second. What do, what do you think of the biggest um, the, the biggest issues with LLMs in terms of uh, their fragility or their defense? Um, bias hmm. is is the main thing, um, mm-hmm. and you know it's trained by human data, so there's always going to be bias. But working out what those biases are. And then how to handle them, how to disclose them, how to mitigate them if you need to, all that kind of thing. That's a that's a scale problem. Um, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I I have done an interview with ChatGPT, which is not launched. Um, my poor editor is having to pour over this thing because it's just very difficult to make it look like something because it's on a computer. And anyway, it's just right. a real pain in the ass from an editing perspective. Sorry, I, I was thinking you were saying I was interviewing someone from. No, I'm literally (laughs) ChatGPT. I mean, he was narrating it for me, so that's another reason he has to edit it because I'm sure he's he messed up stuff, so he has to re-record his audio. But, um, but uh, one of the things we got to admit is that it's very biased, Mm. and so even even it knows that it's got biases. Like, and so I I think uh, I think that's certainly one of one one of them. But I think also the fidelity of the models themselves. Also, hallucinations are a big problem. Yeah. I talked to the guys at the Pentagon. They're like, well, how are we going to use this thing if it's just daydreaming? <laughs> it's just very dangerous. Well, yeah, know? and that goes into the – that actually – I mean, to me, that's the responsibility of the user in some ways as well. Like you're talking about before how you used it for hacking stuff, and you have, mm-hmm. you're going to have to go oh, – research, sorry. Yeah. And how you're going to have to go back and clean that up. Mm-hmm. Like ultimately, it's your work product, not – the yeah. AIs. Yeah, that's um, right. And I think that's where, like, the whole hallucination thing's interesting because, yeah, for sure, um, if there's things that are making it break, then you need to fix those. 
but <clears throat> part of what I don't like about how much people freak out about that as a problem is that it sort of implies that we've just handed off things to the AI to do. It, right? it will like, happen, my friend. Yeah, I know yeah. it will, but I, <laughs> like, to me, that's that's the, yeah, when I, you know, if, if I'm ever having night sweats about AI, it's usually that. Yeah. It's the idea of just delegating 100%. autonomy to, yeah. it's yeah. like, yeah, we shouldn't do well, that. <laughs> we, well, we definitely know Ukraine has already uh, put kill decisions in AI. Uh, it's narrow AI. It's not a language, large language yeah, models. It's sure. not generating new things. So it's a little bit easier to kind of contain and make sure it's going to do approximately exactly the right thing or as close enough that it's not a terrible problem. But a second you have something like creating something from scratch and thinking this is the way it needs to be done, that's uh, yeah. that's where hallucinations become a yeah, real yeah, problem. Yeah, no, totally. I, I <laughs> definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, so I think we we talked about the uh, perception on the on the company side, but I kind of am curious, do you have any like anecdotes from the hacker side? Like how are they, how has their life changed? I get the impression you've created like a cottage industry that they just didn't exist, not just because there was no method to do this before, but like no one ever really had a job where they could just sit at home and hack halfway across the world, a company they've have no relationship whatsoever with. Yeah. Yeah. And um, make money. Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes good money. <laughs> and not go to jail. Yeah. Um, like, I yeah, I love that question. Like, some of my, f I, I get kind of the warm fuzzies thinking about that because it's a thing that happens every now and then. Someone will just reach out and say, thank you. And they'll tell me that story, um, like, unprompted. And it's, like, seriously one of my favorite things about, about doing this. Well, is, it's kind of like mini stuff. entrepreneurship. Yeah, it literally is. And, and, like, every, you know, I have an expression, every bug's a startup. Um, and it's partly because, like, as a as a bug bounty hunter or as an independent hacker, you know, you are creating a small business. So, you know, part of what we try to teach alongside offensive security skills is like business. Like, how do you you know conduct yourself in a way that's going to help you do more with your client? Like, mm -hmm. how do you do the tax thing? How do you? Because if you got a seventeen year old, like, they've never thought any of that through. Right. They're just thinking about breaking computers. Right. right. Um, yeah, I guess so. I never thought about this. Do do uh, on occasion do they actually get hired by these companies? Yeah, yeah. They they start their own companies. They will get hired. They'll mm. you know they'll do all sorts of things. Um, wow. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, and and I actually do look at that in terms of like the crowd itself. I hate it when some platforms talk about we have X million hackers. I'm like. No, you don't. <laughs> X million people signed up. And also, no, you don't, because they're not yours. Mm -hmm. They aren't yours. Like, you don't actually own these people. You're not even, like, technically employing them and retaining them. Like, our job is to attract people and then have them make a decision that working with us on a particular program is worth their time, which is our responsibility as well, right? So it's not like we don't have them. Like, it's like they mm -hmm. know us right. and we can like talk to them. Yeah, what would way. be the right metric then do you think? Like uh, <clears throat> amount of bugs found or paid out per month or something like that? That like, one, that one how do you, is... How do you measure success exactly? In aggregate as a platform... Um, I'm sure Gartner has a way to do this. Yeah, <laughs> ask the Forrester guys. They'll tell you. Uh, no, look, that's a, a complex one. But like coming back to the um, anecdote, like there's a kid who's actually here in Vegas. We're running a, a life hacking event. Um, who I met in 2016 when we invited him to an automotive uh, event in Detroit. 
gifted hardware guy uh, and, and incredible kind of like convergence thinker. So he'll like get into hardware, but then what he'll be thinking about is like, what's the relationship between this target and everything else around it? Who do I need to bring in to get the thing to pop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he was 16 when he started doing stuff with us. Um, completely out of the blue, about six months ago, he's like, hey, you know, just want to say thank you for inviting me to that event. Like, had I not done that, um, I'd be like stealing cars. Because uh, he came up from a poor background, mm-hmm. like he's got crime in his family. Um, and he's not doing that, and he's actually pursuing this, and he credits that experience to those life choices. I'm like, oh, like that's a, yeah, that's a good day. Like mm-hmm. getting messages like that's kind of cool. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm kind of curious. Um, I know you posted a while back, um, probably th- a week or week or two back. Uh, you had bought some body armor, um, so you there's the good and the bad about the crowd, right? <laughs> like, uh, what what was the impetus for that? Yeah, look, I I, I think I, I got asked questions. I, I definitely you posted had, online for a reason. I think <laughs> I had regret around posting it. A oh, did bit you? After. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, to some extent, I think uh, you know it was partly I'd just been in Australia, coming back to the U.S. and just kind of readjusting to thinking about that type of thing. It was it was partly a statement of that on that um but yeah i I mean i think you know in general like i you know wear a helmet when i snowboard and it's because i like my head intact Mm -hmm. um you know i think it's it's similar to that um you know from a threat model perspective you know people know who bug crowder is people know who i am um we're deliberately in the business of making life harder for bad people Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes folk in the crowd get annoyed at, at different things as well. So, yeah, it was, it was interesting because as a decision, it's not even something that I'm like, you know, protecting myself with all the time or whatever. It was just like, oh, this is actually probably an easy thing that I can do um, just to add a bit of safety to my person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's kind of how that played out. Hmm. I uh, I have definitely had a number of very serious death threats over the years. Um, mm. I think it's a hazard of being in this industry and and being at the top of this industry. If, yeah. if you're at the bottom, I mean, you're probably fine. But uh, but there's a lot of cartels. There's a lot of foreign governments. There's a lot of just kind of crazy people who have very you know strong opinions about whatever it is. So yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think you know just in general, like where like there's the there's the actual adversary and then even within our community um there's a lot of opinions a lot of emotions and that's kind of our job like we're here to we're here to kind of break things right so the idea of that being but i think you know especially the way hollywood portrays us uh that's true really really awful that is true uh there's this perception that you know you have the the guys with guns and they're the ones who are in the action scenes mm. and we're just be behind the scenes just you know making the traffic but that's just not true <laughs> <laughs> i know lots of hackers who've been deployed in yeah, really 100%. scary situations uh, you know often having to carry firearms with them very often confronting illegal yeah. activity and yeah, they're oftentimes they're oftentimes stuff, yeah. the people who are walking into the room to right. shut off machines in front of the guy who's doing the bad thing and yep. It's it's actually a pretty hazardous, real job, especially if you're kind of front lines forensics work. Like, yep. like you know, you could have just removed something that a literal state actor who will actually murder you if you are removing their access. You know, I mean, yeah, 
It's, uh, it's yeah, I mean, it, I, I think you know, with that, like, I, I helped. I helped a guy one time with. Um, he reached out because he'd found a bug in a TCL Television, um, which is a Chinese company. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the deeper he looked into it, the more he concluded that it was actually deliberately put there as a backdoor. Um, I'm like, okay, that changes the game a little <laughs> bit here. Um, yeah, because the other problem this guy had is he lives in Asia, um, not not in China, but right. in Asia. I'm like, okay, you need to be thinking. I'm not saying that bad things. Don't freak out. Don't be super paranoid. Whatever, but you need to be thinking about your safety with this one, um, and you need to just be wise with, with with how you're talking about it, how you're approaching it, because like, this is going to piss a lot of people off. Mm-hmm. So like, how can I help you think through that and then how can we kind of do this in a way that limits that risk you know that's not that's a part of what we do that people don't talk about or think about all that often and like coming back to your question around you know the the post I made similar sort of thing it's like Mm -hmm. okay it's it's time I I think there is a pretty strong parallel between physical security and electronic security as well 100% which it a lot it's funny because I say I'm in security and uh, in the old days when I said that, people thought I meant physical security. Yeah. They thought I meant I'd put on body armor and uh, was you know, at a mall or something. <laughs> but what I really Internet meant... Internet mall cop. Yeah, what I, what I really meant was there is a there is a thing I'm trying to protect. And if I have to protect that in a physical sense, I will protect it in a physical sense. Yep. If I have to protect it in a logical sense, then that's what's going to happen. Yep. I don't think you can kind of divorce security completely from any aspect of it. Like... I like to tell people it's as big as quasars going off uh, like many galaxies away that send high energy particles down and, and bit flip something in memory. Yep. And it's as small as quantum computing. Yeah. Uh, and it's everywhere in between. And if, if you're trying to think about security as just a nerd behind a keyboard, you're just you're kind of missing out on what yep. how much security relies on the physical realm. Well, and vice versa mm-hmm. as well. I, yeah. like, I, like I think you know, the, the inverse of that's true. And like COVID, like I think COVID actually did a reasonably good job of driving that point home against the average person. It's mm-hmm. like, no, our lives are at least partly lived online at this point. Um, the thing that I think is good about that is that, you know, you, you think about safety in a physical, you, know, you walk down a dark alley, you're thinking through like what's going on, what might happen and mitigating that. Um, I think you know nowadays most people do think about cyber as an extension of their their personal space, um, and and you know maybe some of those thinkings that happen in the physical world start to translate across. Um, I think that's a useful phenomena for for us to work with as as you know evangelists and practitioners and all these different things. Um, but yeah, like the convergence of cyber and physical is a great. I, I did a talk on. Uh, uh, food supply chain security at, at B-Sides yesterday. Um, yeah, you kind of got shanghai into that one, didn't you? Yeah, I, I, I did, yeah, yeah. Um, that <laughs> you was, weren't supposed to give that talk. No, it was someone else's talk, and they got they got stuck flying in, and, and they're all they're also tall and Australian and redheaded. And so this is when your improv skills come in. <laughs> it was, honestly, I actually wanted to challenge myself as well. I'm like, this is going to be a total shit show. Mm-hmm. Like, I understand the content, I can present it, but I'm, it's not how I like to present. Right. Um, but kind of wanted to push myself a little bit to, to do it. And, it, you know, it went well. I think um, everyone kind of got it. It was funny, like whatever else. But uh, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah, Ag, Ag Supply. There was a, a quote that got thrown out in a panel that we ran straight after, 
which was like we're on the event horizon of of cyber and physical being thought of as different things. Uh, I'm like, that's just the most beautiful way I've heard that put. Mm. Um, because it, it's like what you're saying is absolutely true. It's everywhere. It's in everything. It underpins everything we do. Um, it's deliberately designed to be transparent to the user because that's how people build products, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Right. right? So this idea of like, they're not different things. They're actually converged you know, already. Mm-hmm. We're just becoming more aware of that. That's kind of how I think about that. Well, I, for one, think that that post was great. Um, not because the post itself was particularly, you know, well-written or anything like that, but but because I think I think we all need to discuss our vulnerability to some yeah, degree. 100%. And if you, of all people, can't say I'm vulnerable and, you know, here's, here's something I'm doing to mitigate this one particular risk, whether it's the right mitigation or not or whatever, but at minimum just talking through, like, here's, here's what's going on with me, mm. I think... There, there's so many like parallels to types of vulnerability, emotional yeah. vulnerability, physical vulnerability, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And like the fastest way to start getting ahead of it is just to talk about it out loud. And yep. a guy like me can say, Hey, maybe you should get this other thing or whatever, <laughs> you know, and I can kind of weigh in or help out or have useful yeah. conversations like this or whatever. But I really appreciated it to be honest. I Thank you. Was, no, uh, I, it, was, I, I appreciate And to your point, that's exactly what happened. Like people reached out. Mm-hmm. Um, it did, there was, you know, without going too deep into the context of it, like it did, like I did actually want that help mm-hmm. at that point in time. Uh-huh. Um, and that vulnerability and that transparency solicited that help that frankly wasn't even what I was trying to do. Right. Um, but it came from, you know, the community, from friends, mm-hmm. from different things like it's that. Why It's why we post it all, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and it's, want, it's like, feedback. okay, that's, that's cool. I think what you're saying as well in terms of... Um, in terms of you know vulnerability and transparency, like I, I talk about this a lot, actually with founders, um, I, I use a lot of security principles in, in terms of how I talk to people about entrepreneurship because it works. Um, but this idea of you know as a founder, um, you're going to go through a lot of very vulnerable stuff because like building a rocket ship lighting the fuse and then finishing the rocket ship off is <laughs> it's a lot of fun but yeah there's a lot of shit that happens in the process right uh. so, so being able to being able to actually um you know manage um like don't you know in this role you're you're oftentimes i think there's pressure to look like you've got 110 percent of everything all together all the time um which is, you know, to me, almost that's impossible the, if you're the trying Instagram to That's the Instagram version yeah. of it. It's just not that way. Yeah, what's well, the TechCrunch version in, mm-hmm. in, in the case of the entrepreneur, right? right? Yeah. Because yeah. there's, you know, survivor bias, success bias, all these different things. And that's what you look at as a prototype founder and think, like, you have to do. Mm-hmm. But, like, shit happens. So, okay, what are you going to do about that? Like, anticipate that. How are you going to get ahead of that using transparency and vulnerability to build resilience um, is, is one of the things I talk about a lot and try to do myself as well. Okay, so what would you say to a brand new security, you know, professional wanting to get in the industry who kind of wanted to follow your path and say, I want to go from, you know, network um, intern all the way through, you know, being a successful entrepreneur. Like what would, how would you, what would you say to that person? What would advice would you give them? Start now. (laughs) Don't give up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, don't don't give up, but literally start now. I think the biggest thing that I see um, security, like security people, I think 
are inherently good at entrepreneurship because we're always looking for a new way to do a thing. Right? It's like, oh, okay. Like you think about exploiting a network. I start here. I want to get to there. I've got this at my disposal to do that. And I've got all this shit trying to stop me. And my job is to create a path. Like starting a company is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So I think like the, the mental models that, that exist in our community are actually naturally suited to this type of thing. The main reason we don't do it is that we don't think that we're ready or we don't think we have enough resource or like there's you know, fear of failure, all those different things. Um, and I think all of that stuff you can kind of work out on the fly, but if you use that as a thing that stops you from starting in the first place, then it'll never happen. I love that answer. Um, and so do you, would you tell them to do it? Yeah. It, you, you, would you say entrepreneurship is, is for everybody? Should you just, just oh, okay. go do it? Because <laughs> well, I, I think there's a caveat there, which is like certain, is certain, people, <laughs> certain people are much more inclined. Yeah. And certain people should not be entrepreneurs, like full stop. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a good call out. It's not a like, oh yeah, everyone should do this. Everyone can do this, whatever else. And you, like what, what I so do what, believe is that anyone could. So uh, what, 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 is, what do you think is the defining quality of success? Tenacity, um, resilience, mm-hmm. you know, the, the ability, I think humility, um, like in the true sense, not like I'm like super humble, but like true, like intellectual honesty and, and the ability to apply that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a huge one. Like I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I started Bugcraft from a, from a company leadership standpoint. Um, like I knew leadership, I knew like there's things that I drew from, you know, playing drums and bands and like social work I'd done, whatever else. So I kind of got, leadership and communication I, I kind of drew in from that mm. but in terms of like what the hell's a vc and you know how do term sheets work and like how do i do a budget for how do i fire someone um you know how do i hire someone how do i rent a space i, I knew none of that just very simple stuff that you have to figure out pretty quickly early on so um you know admitting that and then, you know, seeking mentors, I think, was a huge thing. That's something so, that I so always what, recommend what as well. what aren't you good at? I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I, mean I mean that in a, no, in a non-joking that. way. I think that you have had a lot of amazing successes. <laughs> um, but, like, we're all bad at something, and we all have to hire for things that we aren't good at. What would you say that would be an example where you you did lean on your team truly to oh, yeah, help totally. you out. Okay, that's, yeah, for sure. In a team context, actually, yeah, and it does reflect, you know. I mean, that's what entrepreneurship is. It's not truly just being your own person. I mean, you have to work with people. Yeah, yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you raise a good point as well because, you know, as a founder, like your company's ultimately going to end up reflecting your personality, like whether you like it or not. So you see the things that you like about yourself, the things you don't like. And then the things you wish no one kind of knew, um, <laughs> they all start to get reflected back at you. Same mm-hmm. as when you have kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, yeah, what am I? So I won't go to the last category, the middle one. Um, I would say, um, you know, I mean, I'm you're pretty on the kind of ADHD end of things, bouncing around, doing all that kind of stuff. That means I can hyper-focus. It means I can think in graphs. There's all sorts of things that actually are useful about that. But, you know, linearity, like converting and, and interfacing with people that don't think in this way, um, you know, on a continuous basis, like different things like that, uh, you know, th- th- those were some of the areas where I actually got help first. Um, and just being able to bounce off folk to, like, conceal, like, um, being able to bounce off folk to crystallize an idea 
and articulate it because I've you know I've got all of this stuff swimming around in my head and usually the hard thing is actually squeezing it out so someone else can pick it up and run with it mm. so I needed help with that and I, I knew that kind of early on um, and yeah some of the first people that, that I brought on like that was a big part of what they did they all had different skills you know like one was my co-founder Chris like brilliant platform engineer but just like a brother mm. um, and we'd riff um, he's a fast thinker as well but he had the ability to reflect on me when I'm trying to figure stuff out in a way that just helped me like get to the light bulb moment mm-hmm. um, and then from there I can say a thing do a thing and have the rest of the team pick it up and run with it is he Holmes and you Watson or vice versa <laughs> we switch we switch out he's a f- he was phenomenal um, uh, you know he, he was with us for about we actually poached him out of the incubator that we were in so I'd never met him before I started mm-hmm. Bugcrowd oh wow and kind of lucked in on, on that side of it um, boy you lucked out there yeah, that could have gone very differently <laughs> yeah no absolutely um, but but it, you know I, I think I, I can I'm reasonably good at that um but then again serendipity yeah <laughs> just kind of yeah. you know having him in the same room luck so. blind luck all right so what's uh next for you man what's uh what are you gonna what's your next five ten years look like do you think oh wow okay i'm like what time scale you know i want to see i want to see bug crowd grow and do everything that it possibly can like we we um got a new ceo in about 12 months ago um mm-hmm. And that's just worked out incredibly well. So as a founder, it's nice because, like, I can kind of sit back at arm's length from things. Can and, you though? No, they, st- they still no, want you I'm in the room. Freaking, yeah, no, <laughs> and because I love it, right? Yeah, like, yeah, there's, yeah. there's definitely that. But I feel like I can do that, which is, as a founder, like that's a pretty amazing feeling. Um, so yeah, like continuing to give input on 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 that and and work you know monkey around with AI and, and all those different things that we we're talking about before and just drive innovation, mm-hmm. um, you know tell stories like evangelize all that kind of stuff. Um, that's in the bug crowd context. Um, you know at, at whatever point I'm not doing that, I'll probably sleep for about six months, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I'll go and do it again. Yeah, I'll honestly just go off and do it again because um, yeah. you know founding I've got a list of ideas that reads like a toilet roll um and i want to get around to some of those um but i think the other thing is that i just love this like you know, even the team stuff you were just talking about like assembling that core team is one of my very favorite things to do because yeah. you just end up with this group of people that you just run through walls together like you build all these experiences um and and lessons and you know all that kind of stuff and i'm i think i'm reasonably good at leading that stuff and I, I want to actually give that another shot at some point in the future so there is that one um, policy stuff wow. like God knows what else like Glenn for punishment <laughs> no but that is, and, and I, I will say the six months of sleep part is like no yeah. word of fly in the sense of okay like let's decompress from this thing for a second and make sure that's a good idea yeah um, there's a lot of different things that are available you know at this point in time like the policy stuff has been so fulfilling um you know, mentorship, like getting, you know, I, I don't want to get into the VC thing directly, but mm-hmm. like angel advisory, yeah. like mentoring, you know, the stuff we're talking about before. Yeah, I, I'm passionate about that. Always yeah, I, I do quite a bit of that as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of different things, I think, you know, in 10 years time, um, yeah, I'll be, I'll be building something, you know, doing something that looks roughly like what I'm doing right now, just different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think me too. <laughs> yeah. Glutton for punishment. It's, it's good an answer she can give her. I was like, I actually don't know because like that's a long time. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah. But I but do know the things that I'd, I'd want to I'd want to prioritize. But what what I think I do know about you is you're not you're you're not going to sit on a beach somewhere. No, I mean if if I do, I'll be it'll be you know sporadic, and I'll be you know driving my family nuts, and they'll be telling me to go back to work. I, 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 t- I tell executives this fairly frequently, like they're about to sell their company, and they're like, "Okay, I'm just I'm gonna fully retire after this." I'm like, "No, you're not," and they're they're looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, "Look, you're too valuable. You're 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 going to realize." You're just leaving a lot on the mm. table that you know you want to do and know you should do, and yeah, you're, you're going to go take a vac- vacation or whatever. But you're yeah. you're yeah. gonna. It won't take long. <laughs> yeah. I'll yeah. see you back on the conference floor I'll in see a you year back in, the, in the jungle. Yeah. <laughs> now, look, I, I do I do think you know that idea of just always having ideas swimming around and this intrinsic belief that oh maybe I could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for founders, that's like a splinter in your mind. Like you can't shut that off. Mm-hmm. So you know what you do with that, I think, becomes the next thing. But yeah, to your point, the idea of just I'm going to do nothing. It's like, mm. mm-hmm. like no, at the I very least, so. you're going to go do something stupid, like right. buy a vineyard or right, yeah. you know, whatever. You have <laughs> some <laughs> other adventure, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. So how do people find you, Casey? Yeah. So I am. I'm still uh, on Twitter, um, Casey John Ellis. Um, just in case there's another Casey Ellis Just out there. Just in case there's another Casey. Well, <laughs> yeah, that was taken when I signed up, so that's why uh-huh. the name's there, and uh-huh. that's actually how that <laughs> happened. Um, yeah, it's probably the easiest thing. CJIO is is my own um, website. Bugcrowd.com is is Bugcrowd, uh-huh. and all the stuff we talked about. Anyone who wants to touch that or interact and with that on the, on the customer or the hacker side, they can go there. Disclose.io. Um, I like you know naming things in a way that people remember yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to keep it simple uh, yeah that's where you can find me alright Casey well this has been great so thanks, thanks so man. much for doing this really appreciate it yeah, yeah. and uh, protect the voice yes <laughs> we'll try we'll try we'll try have a great week thanks dude